Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Know Your Options, the measured risk podcast. The ultimate guide to navigating the volatile nature of the markets while managing risk purposefully. Join us as we challenge the theory behind traditional asset allocation and dive into the mathematics of investing. Whether you are a seasoned investor or just starting out, this podcast offers valuable insights and practical advice to help you make informed decisions and manage your money wisely. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's dive into the world of calculated risks together. Well, good day, everybody. This is Larry Kriesmer with the Know Your Options podcast. I'm here with my business partner, Bernard Sarovsky. And Hello. Special guest today. Thank you, Bernard. Hello. Special guest today is Fred Say, and he's with the Money Matters USA advisory firm. He's also a uh, pretty well frequent uh, media contributor and podcast host himself. And so we'll be learning more about his experience and development here in the financial services business. So, Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Great. Excellent. So why don't we start with um, a little bit of your background? You sure. weren't, you haven't always been a financial advisor. So let's start with. No, uh, no, I started out, uh, started out in the uh, teaching world at uh, a number of major universities and um, then side uh, sidestepped into consulting part time Um when you have the use of uh, graduate students to do some of your research, it's uh, it's always it's always nice. effective to do that, and undergraduates to help carry their uh, to carry their uh, bags, if you will, and support them. And then from that, I said, you know what, I like this, and um, so I went into consulting full time. I was very fortunate to be able to be with a couple of large, uh, well known public firms and then um, decided that I had done enough of that and and wanted to do something different. And I can't say that I knew immediately exactly what I I wanted to do. It was a bit of trial and error uh, to figure it out. And uh, what I found kind of by accident in a conversation with a friend of mine that uh, maybe what I ought to be doing is is, uh, working with, uh, with people uh, to see uh, if uh, I could help them retire successfully and and put it put a bow on that. And so I said, okay. So how do you how do you do that? And he said, you do it. You do it. And uh, I it wasn't that uh, simple. I had some very very good coaches who helped me with that and uh, went along. And I figured figured out my you know my own definition of what of what that of what that is and what what is involved in that and um and to make myself stand out so I could be different in my community and uh while that also and still do quite a bit of pro bono work i I think it's important uh to do it i mean I don't want to want to sound uh, silly and say well you should give back to the community well I think you should give back to the community because i I think that's you know, you got to live in the in in that area I, I work where I live and uh, I want to enjoy it and I, I I like walking down the street and being recognized and 
Yeah, and even people that I don't know say hello to me. I don't have the foggiest idea who they are. <laughs> it reminds me of my youth. I, I say they happen to be periodically, but for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> I'll tell, I'll tell a very short story, very short story. I was in an office um, in another area, and a woman was walking up to the, to the door, I thought, and I, I recognized her immediately, so I waved at her, and then she sort of looked at me strangely and, and continued to walk by, and I realized, oh, she's the weather caster. <laughs> I, I, see her, I see her every day. She didn't recognize me. Uh, that is, you know, that is that is funny. Uh, apropos of that, when I when I was a youngster growing up, the um, fellow next door was a weathercaster on uh, on a well known uh, New York radio station. <laughs> One day, he went out with his raincoat. My mother called me back and had me, you know, wear a, a heavy yellow raincoat with rain hat and gloches. It didn't rain. Must have been 87 degrees. It was I baked. So I complained to my mother. And then I I met him on the street and I mentioned it to him. And he started laughing hysterically. He said I was just taking it to the cleaners telling your mother stop watching me so closely. Well, that's a and that's a great example of uh, good data, bad outcome, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. False well, Missy correlation. Data. <laughs> I think it's more Missy data. Exactly. Yeah, not, not reading the tea leaves correctly. Fred, tell us a little bit about how you how you made the transition from the you know from from the academia to you know to to advising clients. That seems like quite the transition to make because you know, academia seems so theoretical, and yet when you introduce people into the equation. Uh, there's a whole another level of uh, management well, that's required. That's a good question, and and probably the most honest answer is I've never made the full the full transition uh, because most of my clients are are highly analytical. Okay, and I enjoy working uh, with them. There's nothing that terrifies me as much as uh, the the hard driving executive who says, "Don't bother me with the details. Just give me the." overview and and where do I sign? I'm terrified by that kind of person. I I can't function with that kind of person. So in a sense, I've I've never really uh, made the transition. I I do get bogged down uh, in the research. Uh, I am a huge consumer of uh, of high quality research. Uh, I don't know, you can't quite see in my office, but you laugh if if you saw how many books are around my uh, desk on the floor? And um, one of my um, professors I had, taught me how to how do you read? And uh, his answer was: you read the introduction, the preface, chapter one, the conclusion, and then anything else you need in between to get to it. And he said, on my tombstone, and this is true, on my tombstone, I want I want something if necessary. A footstone says he never read a book. <laughs> and, uh, and it's true he does it, there's a footstone there's a headstone there's a there's a footstone and it says exactly that he never read a book oh and, and so using that using now i've yeah i've been through speed a number of speed reading courses where you put your finger down the center of the page and don't remember anything that you read yeah i i've been had that experience but uh, I use that technique all the time, and it allows me to read quite a bit and, and to cover a lot of ground. And if necessary, I'll go back and look at a, at a chapter or, or something. That that makes me an enormous consumer 
of, uh, of high quality uh, academic research, National Bureau of Economic Research, and uh, listen to I listen to quite a few podcasts, but I also follow up uh, uh, with uh, written written uh, articles or white papers, uh, ebooks, uh, and so on. And I there were certain academics that I follow very very closely because they they make the most sense to me. So that's and, and I now have my own process that that I I use uh, and. It's not. It's not a process that that high driving executive would want. And I have I have found that uh, people who are just anxious to keep moving, you know, move money and move it fast, and that that's basically a a, a three you know a three sessions and, and a hard close uh, at the end of the third session. And the book you get is is about four to five tabs, and then someone who will go four or five visits and and you you know you get the five or six tabs i mean I, my my mine is six uh, six guaranteed frequently we do eight nine ten eleven twelve and we do 12 tabs plus a supplement so you're you're getting uh, you're you're getting with for anybody that works with me is is getting a really detailed comprehensive plan and all these supporting uh, documents that are necessary to validate uh, that plan, and uh, that's that's the reason for the number of visits. So that each each word in the plan is read, discussed. I don't have any fear. I give them the plan. They take it home, beat it up, come back, discuss it, and so on. I mean, I will will move money. Only when we're satisfied that uh, we know what their goals are, what their aspirations are. Um, I, I may be unusual, but in my first, in, a, in our first session, uh, I don't ask them to bring, uh, you know, their financial paperwork. Uh, I'm not interested in their financial paperwork at that point. I'm interested in them, or husband, wife, uh, whatever the relationship is that my, my meetings run about two hours to two and a half hours. So that's a typical meeting. I don't do 20 minute uh, meetings or one hour meeting. And how about, I mean, be different. do you screen out any significant number of people that uh, can't, you know, can't handle that? Or is it coming to you through referrals where people know what they're getting into or how does your client base behave? I have, um, I have two power planners. And we have a younger uh, power planner who works with people between half a million and about six hundred and fifty million. I don't work with them. Uh, my my minimum is a million, a million three. And that's where I start. I go up to about uh, ten, twelve million, and we stop at that point. Not because we don't think that we can compete with the money management firms. It's just that uh, they they have a better story to tell than you know than we do. And if fees are higher, and and I guess uh, some people think if they if if they get a choice between a slightly lower fee, which is which what our fee uh, would be uh, on that amount of of, uh, of money, if they pay more, then you know they they're getting more. You know, it, it's like the automobile manufacturer has has an interchange manual, and if you're buying this car or that car, you're going to pay more for the parts for that car, but you got the parts. Maybe for the cheaper car that that are in there, but you won't know the difference. So, I it's that's not a self-serving, uh, you know, comment. I I we 
we as a firm uh, believe, and I believe because it's ref- the firm's reflection uh, of of me, uh, that uh, unless unless you can unless you can manage risk, and I don't mean risk in the you know sense of Markovitz that 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 risk. And uh, volatility, or you know, are the same. I don't. Th- th- there's a difference between risk and volatility, and and we make clear, and I make clear, uh, what those distinctions are, and we also make clear that the individual uh, and I mean, take risk tolerance very seriously. We look at risk tolerance and risk capacity. Take that very seriously. This is not. You know, document that's made up by the legal department, and I got to I got to show this to you. And you know, they just sign off. It doesn't mean it. Yeah, it means a great it means a great deal. And portfolios have their own risk uh, as well, and and that and that that can be measured, and you can put a risk number uh, on it. And I, I know that some people would would say that uh, if you compare, um, you know, Monte Carlo failure. You know, with uh, with with uh, being on an airplane and having a five percent uh, risk or ten percent risk of crashing, some people will say, "Oh, that, they're not the same." But I think I, I I don't want to take up I don't want to take up all all the time in this podcast to talk about the weaknesses of of Monte Carlo. I think that you know f- uh, risk of failure is is uh, is important and, and also to understand what what the Monte Carlo uh, scenario is. Is telling you well. We we do twenty five thousand iterations per possibility. My understanding through the American College is that uh, if, if you do less than five thousand, you don't even have a conversation about the possibility of there being any validity to what you're looking at. But that's that's my understanding, and maybe I'm wrong. But that's what I was taught at the American College. I hope yeah, well, that answers your question. Well, I was actually more thinking in terms of, uh, you know, does every one of your potential new clients, are they willing to go through that process? I mean, obviously, if they're if they're on meeting six, the answer is some, yes. Some are not. Some, yeah. some, you know, some will take the draft document and, and say, thank you very much, you know, after the fifth or sixth uh, meeting. And I mean, it might be that they're just reading the introduction and the conclusion. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, because that's not a finished document at that yeah. point. Uh, yeah. but at that point, we will ask them for, uh, you know, for referrals. We we tell them we'd like referrals. We probably don't ask for enough of them. Uh, but that, at that point, we will then write them and explain where we think they are uh, and what the, what the missings are. And we'll ask them for referrals uh, again and remind them. And when we do events, we will invite them. Uh, some of them come back and eventually do become clients. Some do not. And, you know, we ask them to bring somebody that they don't know, uh, that we don't know, rather. And um, and that's the price of admission. Uh, in other words, we're not selling them a ticket for $50, but we're saying bring a couple that uh, who are friends of yours, who, uh, but we don't know, and introduce us to them. And that's an easy way of uh, of getting a referral. I want to go back a little bit to the Monte Carlo discussion. You know, Larry and I, we've, we've been in this industry long enough now, believe it or not, that we've experienced, you know, good markets and bad markets. And it's always struck me as, you know, so obvious in, in the rearview mirror when that bad crisis comes along and you're like, well, how did people not see that one coming? And be it the housing crisis, be it the dot-com crisis, be it, you know, again, in, in, in hindsight, it's all twin, it's all 
quite so obvious. I, I just, you know, I've, I've always wondered about the weakness of back-tested models and about the, uh, you know, I always have the story about the, the professor years ago when I was doing my thesis. He said to me, well, what's your conclusion? Go find the data to support it. And that's always reminded me of like back-tested models. And I think Monte Carlo just kind of runs the whole sequence of, but in the reality of a, you know, of, of a meltdown, you know, human nature kicks in and people, you know, they, they, they lose their grip or, or sense of reality. It's just fear takes over and fear is such a strong motivator. I think it might be an even stronger motivator than greed in a crisis in particular. How do you overcome or, or manage the, like the portfolio construction to, to address some of those concerns? Well, first of all, from a conceptual point of view, a great deal of time on looking at drawdowns and not just hypothetical drawdowns or looking at uh, S&P time periods, but actually showing them the impact of drawdowns on the portfolios that they have and the software that we use will show them uh, what the what the up is, what the down is in that portfolio. And you're absolutely right. Most of the measures that are used are backward looking, whether it's a sharp ratio, whether it's beta, it's it's all it's all back looking despite the warning uh, that past performance is not you fill in the blank. But in fact, it's all backward looking. So uh, one of the ways that I manage risk is to is through realistic scenario planning, and um, then we look at how the portfolio would perform if the Federal Reserve, for example, raised rates, or the Federal Reserve uh, contracted the money supply, if China had um, a, a recession. I'm just taking these arbitrarily if the yield curve was inverted. In other words, realistic, not just hypothetical, just realistic scenario planning. How would your current portfolio, the one that you walked in with, how would it perform? And what could it do on the upside? What would it do on the downside? What is it doing right now? So we could establish a range. Then we could look and say, what was what is the best it's ever done? What is the worst it's ever done? Now, my average client is in their early 60s. They don't have a lot of time left for um, active accumulation. So limiting the drawdowns becomes very, very important. Now, I can't say uh, that we can do this with absolute precision, but we want to limit drawdowns to about 10 or 11% worst case. Yeah, we're giving up some upside. We're perfectly willing to give up some upside in order to protect on the downside. Now, I agree with you that 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 people feel lashed when they start losing money and and they do irrational they do irrational things. So, if if losses hurt more than the possibility of a gain, do they do they value a gain over a loss? Well, you know what the answer to that is. So if we can limit the downside, just buffer that downside and stop it out entirely, then the recovery is not as uh, difficult, not, not as doesn't take as long for us, because while they're recovering, nothing is happening other than trying to get back to the starting point. 
What are some of the tools? What are some of the tools do you use to to probably buffer them out? You were saying like from a portfolio construction standpoint, what what are you doing? Well, we use Extrema. We use their PCT Pro 3 uh, now. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Rickstreamer. We love this. Yeah, Rickstreamer, and you've got what, Hidden Levers and Riskalyze, or is Riskalyze the one that went to Yeah, we don't use Riskalyze. For some reason, Riskalyze attacked uh, Rickstreamer a couple of years ago, and they had a pretty fiery exchange. We've we've always used, uh, we we like Rickstreamer. And uh, we use Y charts that uh, we find that that's, uh, that that's quite helpful. And we those are those are the main things. We we use uh, Morningstar as well, um, not as heavily as, as Y charts, but we, we use Morningstar more for comparison uh, when portfolio when people come in for, with their portfolios. Uh, we also use the index standard. And we find that uh, we, we like the methodology that they use in analyzing indexes and ETFs. I'd say those are the those are the main uh, software that that we use. Uh, we use some stuff on the uh, on the annuity side, uh, Morningstar. Uh, we also use the index standard. That's the main, probably the main thing. We we use some of the Covisum. Uh, software for uh, for tax planning and income planning. Uh, what's been what's been like your biggest surprise or and or your biggest disappointment when you've you know either built a portfolio for a client and you've had something happen that you didn't expect? Do you have any stories like that to relate or not? Or, or nothing really stands out. Yeah, we absolutely missed the significant. Beside Apple, we absolutely did not anticipate the impact uh, that uh, technology has had in, in driving in driving the market. Yeah, we, we knew about Apple. Uh, we knew about NVIDIA. Uh, did not think about uh, Microsoft or, or, or Dell or so I, I'd say we, we missed on we missed on that. So when when clients are convinced that they have to have diversification Perhaps I'm, perhaps I'm, I'm the redhead, in, you know, in the blondes convention. I'm not a great, I'm not a great believer in diversification, uh, because everybody that has talked about diversification, you know, Benjamin Graham, uh, Paul Samuelson, senior, uh, to take two examples, Buffett. I mean, they didn't make their money through diversification. I mean, Graham made his money. On, on Coca-Cola, uh, Samuelson on Geico. I mean, diversification is o- is overly <laughs> overemphasized, in my opinion. Uh, yeah. I'm not saying it isn't helpful, but I, but I, but I wouldn't I wouldn't be a slave. I wouldn't be a slave to it, regardless of of you know of of, of everything that I read. The other point is the, when when the mar- when the markets are highly correlated, it's great to talk about the sixty forty portfolio, and and from an academic point of view or from an illustration point of view, makes a lot of sense when when you're doing an event or or what have you. But the truth of the matter is, as I see it, if the sixty forty portfolio is is undermined. Uh, because the mark the market doesn't perform the way the sixty forty portfolio says it ought to perform, yeah. then you have to do something else. And sometimes clients leave because I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be wedded to that. I'm. It might be seventy thirty. You know, it, it might be thirty seventy. I mean, it it might it might 
when people come in and say, I'm 100% and I'm going to lose $4 million, uh, I say, go someplace else. I'm not your guy. To me, that's that's a catastrophic loss if your portfolio is worth $6 million. I mean, let's not overestimate, uh, you know, depending on your on your lifestyle. We had somebody come in recently with a million three portfolio and their spend their spend rate is twenty six thousand a month. And they weren't going to concede on that even in retirement. So it, oh, uh, it's, they're not going to have a long lived retirement. It's going to be four or five years of super fun retirement. <laughs> <laughs> you know, get 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 that get that used uh you know, aluminum trailer, hitch it up to your big truck, your eight-cylinder monster, and go for it. There you go. <laughs> Do you, is there like a common thing that you run into? Um, you've been doing this advising now for 20 years, more? How long? Yeah, a little over. Below 20. Is there a common thing you run into in this age group of 60-year-olds? Or have they grown up with you? I mean, did, did, you, did your some client of them have, start out at 45 of, or 50? Yeah, and now there's some of them have, some of them have not. Uh, yeah, the the question we get asked all the time is, is, is two questions. The first one you can anticipate, do I have enough money? You know, can I have enough money? Do I have enough money? Do I need more money? We use the uh, Society of Actuaries longevity uh, calculator. There are others. Uh, Penn Wharton has one. I don't use it. I use, I use the longevity illustrator. And we start with the longevity analysis. And then we move there into conversation about their, uh, you know, about their income goals, their retirement plans, what they want to do. Uh, and um, then we then we see uh, what they've got and, and what they're and what they would like to do, what what makes sense. And then we can take, you know, then we can, you know, try to answer the same question that Fibonacci uh, work with, do you have enough money? And and we will see if you do. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting too, because, you know, your, your $6 million guy or gal who was willing to lose $4 million, I guess that would be okay if they had like a $26,000 annual spend, you know, yeah. because then, then it wouldn't really impact their spend at all. They can take that kind of risk. So it's, so it's interesting to get people's, you know, feeling like that but i have a feeling that on the way from six million to three million you know <laughs> they, they change their mind on what their risk tolerance is do you spend you say you spend a lot of time on a risk tolerance is this like a really thorough questionnaire do you ask questions forward and backward to try and gauge responses or how do you press that uh we use use uh, psychometric we use uh, psychometric testing uh for that <clears throat> for the for the risk tolerance and then more concrete stuff for risk capacity uh, because risk capacity is more concrete. Uh, so we can pretty well anticipate from the testing what people are going to do. And then in our investment policy statement and in our uh, hard document plan, uh, we we spell out with with their agreement and then construct and construct their assets, their portfolios, as well as their income sources so that they are you know, with, within this uh, maximum drawdown of, say, 10, but sometimes it could be 11. I mean, it can't be uh, 1,000% exact, but it's pretty much in that in that range. And and when they call and say that, you know, that they're hyperventilating, you know, we look and say, you know, drawdown is, is only two and a half, you know, percent at <laughs> this point, you know. So you said you were willing to go to 10. So take it easy at, at this point. You know, because we've had this conversation. So, 
don't do anything. Uh, and it worse comes to worse, um, you know, you it'll be 10%. And, you know, over the next 15, 18 months, you'll get it back. Uh, and in the meantime, you're not depending on that for income. So trust <laughs> relax. I mean, it's interesting, you know, because a year like last year, you know, even the uh, 60, 40 portfolios or the, you know, 70% bond, 30% equity bond, I mean, the bonds just got so, you know, heavily hit in a year like last year. And yet we look at a year like this year where, you know, interest rates have gone up a lot still. And yet, this, yet the market overall is also up, not insignificantly. I mean, a most unexpected turn of events. And, you know, you were saying earlier how one would expect it with interest rates going up, you'd expect the markets to do this and that. One doesn't reasonably think the markets are going to go up in a rising interest rate environment, I suppose. But here we are. I mean, it's pretty, but to your point about technology, I'm just wondering, do you have any kind of, you know, because I, I keep thinking about you have these back-tested models that are going to keep you within that 10% drawdown as an example. But then you have that the world is changing. I don't think, you know, it just seems to be changing at pace. And I just wonder how valid the back-tested test things are with respect to forward-looking events. And you know, how does one manage that? Well, we have we have four model portfolios that 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 we that we use, uh, and we adjust we adjust them quarterly, you know, as is appropriate. So we we go from conservative to moderate, conservative to you know to to moderate to mo- and then to moderate aggressive. We're never aggressive aggressive. If you want to be aggressive aggressive, I might. Agree to have you as 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 um, you know an advisory client, but I'm not doing anything for you. You can call me and ask me what this means. What does it do for you? How does it impact? How many Hail Marys do I have in my portfolio? Should I make this move? Should I make that move? Um, what are you reading? I mean, I, I'll do that, uh, but. But I don't want I don't want to have anything to do with anything that you're doing, you know, actively. When you look at asset allocations, I mean, what assets are you looking at? I mean, I presume you're looking at stocks, bonds, REITs. Is there anything else you, you're looking at in that, in that overall blend? Well, we don't use REITs. We do use, we do use ETFs, uh, real estate ETFs, in place of REITs. I have yeah. bad taste in my mouth for... You know, for for REITs, um, I I had a in a, in a before I I formed the Money Matters, uh, I had uh, I was in business with with uh, for for a short period of time with a um, I had a partner, fortunately died of brain cancer, um, and he was very very big on on REITs and and we had a lot of exposure as a firm to to REITs. And um, it was a very bad experience. And uh, these were traded REITs. So we didn't, didn't deal with non-traded REITs. But the point is, we had a bad experience. And so, you know, I, I get, talk about talk about backward looking. Well, uh, I'm, you know, paint that one on me. I'm guilty. Uh, right. So I, I don't. But um, no, we we, we we do like uh, we do like we do look at factors, not not merely. Uh, not, yeah, we we do look at factors. We we we're very big on uh, on on palladium. We were we were uh, we were interested in copper uh, and um, gold. I'm I'm not a gold bug. I can't tell you. I can't tell you that I am. We were very early on some alts 
but we want to be careful uh, uh, about that. I guess I'm more tried. I'm more tried and, and true. I'm not. You know, I'm I'm willing to take a chance on a smaller uh, company. My view is that people will always pay for cash flow and growth, even if they talk a game about value. Not all of us are as deep pocketed as as Warren Buffett. Uh, very interested. Some a couple of months ago, when uh, Buffett in a very candid interview said, "Yeah, I'm, and this is also interesting." I thought he said, I, "Yeah," he said, I, "I've probably done three hundred. I haven't had three hundred major trades." He said, "But only ten account for my for my success." So there yeah. you go. I mean, I I thought that was a very very candid. Uh, statement, but you know it's consistent with uh, what I found in, in uh, looking more deeply into how. Well, <laughs> Microsoft is another example. That's a single. That's a single company. I mean, what's the diversification? They're not not now. I'm not talking about what they're doing now. I'm talking about you know from the garage, you know, on to huge uh, huge success. I'm not sure I fully answered your question. Uh, I mean, um, do, do you ever look at including options in your asset allocation modeling, or is it? Yeah, we, we we do, but pedestrian from 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 your uh, point of point of view, um, you know, put, puts on the VIX covered calls. That's pretty much where we where we stay. That that's not a really great uh, that's not a really great uh, approach. You know, I, I like to I like to read the uh, options uh, uh, article in in uh, in Saturday's Barons uh, every week, but I assume you know that, that half the literate world is is reading, is reading that as well. So yeah. I mean, it's it's like an algorithm to me that, that that column is like an algorithm that everybody knows and has no value, but maybe that's unfair. To, uh, you know, to the I right. think to the extent you're using any options, you're you're miles ahead of many firms because you know, we we're big fans. And the whole uh, podcast name, know your options, is sort of alluding to the idea that it's a it's, a, it's just another tool uh, that's worth looking at. But thinking of I tools or I, maybe I agree with you. Uh, I I don't think we I don't think we use them. I don't think we use them uh, enough. Uh, you know, well, it's I'm, interesting. Uh, they're they're a complex tool that does require you know a significant amount of experience and education to apply properly. But my favorite thing to talk about options is to just you know express that it's a contract, and if anybody's had a good experience with an option contract, it's at someone else's expense, and vice versa. Financially, if you've had a bad experience either owning or or selling an option contract, it means someone else had a good outcome. Uh, because it worked against you and worked for them, so it's not the options contract's fault. It's just it no, has, no. It has it's a it's a highly skilled uh, tool in delivering one one thing I, to another. I, I don't actually agree with your description entirely. I mean, I think it's the most it's the, in in my mind it's the only asset class that will do exactly what you wanted to do exactly when you wanted to do it, presuming you've placed it in that position to do what it is you wanted to do. Yeah, fair enough. So it, fair it's enough. The, I think it's the only asset class that behaves as expected. You know, bonds, you think are going to be a stable asset as time goes by. And yet, you know, you have a year like last year where, I mean, who would have thought you could lose 28, 30% in a, in a government bond? I mean, it's, it's, it's beyond the, it's almost beyond the realm to even imagine such a thing could happen. And I, I would think that, you know, we've had situations where stocks have, you know, blue chip stocks, you know, be it a Kodak or be it a, Xerox, I mean, we, we have terms called, you know, Kodak moment, or we have, you know, make me a Xerox of this. And these are companies that 
one would never have dreamed of could possibly go out of business or be filing bankruptcy at some point in their journey. And yet, here we are. And so, but an option will do exactly what you want it to do, exactly when you wanted to do it. And, you know, I, I find that so attractive, so incredibly attractive. But anyway. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up with maybe one last question. Um, are there any, if you had a wish list of something you could change in an industry or, you know, a product that doesn't exist or a process or a piece of education uh, that you could toss out there and, and change the, sca- the shape of the landscape? Anything floating around your head that you'd really have a wish list going for? I would very much uh, like to see something about money taught to uh, taught to kids, at least by the eighth or ninth grade. So they have some appreciation uh, of, of, of money, how hard it is to get it, keep it, to hold on to it to enjoy it and to and not that it's you know something that some the allowance that mom and dad you know gives you with a little summer job working you know working at uh, you know at a chain store uh, whether it's a you know pharmacy or whether it's food or whatever it is but I, I think pe- I think people come in and, and they're really illiterate about money and and um, someone said I don't really know the who said it? I, I know who who's saying it now. I just don't know who said it originally. But ed, edu, edu, education without action is meaningless. It just means that that uh, smart people continue to do dumb things with their money. And I don't know who the original person was who said it. Larry, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, David Blanchett uh, says that all the time, but he didn't. He, he didn't. I'll credit him, but I know he didn't invent it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we've had a couple of uh, guests. One of them was with the Foundation for Literacy here in San Diego. Yeah. And they're on an excellent mission to give back to the community and do educational services. Uh, And believe it or not, they've had some difficulty getting into some schools, which is just uh, it's it's mind boggling that that's the case. But the other the other ideas would be so much easier. I'll, I'll put out one just to share It'd be so much easier in this country if we started funding for retirement when children were born, rather than asking the workers of that are currently working to pay for the ones who are already retired. You know, it's just so much more expensive in that process. If we could get our arms around a methodology for that, well, uh, it would be Social Security was always a Ponzi scheme, mm, right? Exactly. The Ponzi schemes work when you're when you're in and out early. <laughs> the problem is when you're hanging around, it is a problem. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. um, yeah, I do a lot of social security planning as, as part of my process, as you would, as you would think. Yeah. And uh, I, I just, I just find that you know that there's oh, there's an overemphasis on um, you know the disappearance of the defined benefit pension plan because that was never a panacea. I mean that that's that's just the media you know invention. People people do have to uh, take it in their own hands and that puts a burden on people it's, it's easier yeah. not to yeah well we don't want to wrap up with the ponzi conversation so ask, <laughs> is there any other question that maybe we could have asked you that uh, you would have liked us to have asked you well i think it was education was the one that we've been well anyway <laughs> well you know if if i had my if i had my druthers you know, I I would uh, I I would create I would create a retirement vehicle, a, a savings vehicle, 
but it doesn't have to, you know, uh, return 7%. I mean, if you started at age 3, 4, or 5 at, at 3%, uh, it, would, it would be perfectly fine. And just put money into it, whether it's uh, the money that you, you earn selling, you know, newspapers, put some of that, or you're, you don't have to have any business acumen, you know, that lemonade stand, you know, on, on, on the front lawn, whatever it is. I mean, if, if you could start people at a very early age, it would make a difference. And uh, the only other observation I would make is that any combination of these late in life social security or or, or uh, pension plans, whether it's in this country, whether it's in Canada, whether it's Australia, New Zealand, none of them work. I mean, they're, they are fundamentally, they're fundamentally flawed. I, I, the only, the positive that I will give you was that a number of years ago, I worked on the social security, I was part of the team that worked on the social security form of the Chilean social security system. And we introduced exposure to the equity markets and to the US dollar. And it was very, very successful. And, you know, politicians, uh, cash flow is king. So now they ended that system some years ago. And, and now they're back to a system that is underfunded and, and overtaxed. Pretty much, pretty much our own, pretty much our own story. Well, Fred, Sade, thank you very much for spending time with us today. Thank you for Thank-Larry. having me. Thank you for being a most excellent co-host. That's my, my pleasure, Larry. Thank you for hosting. All right. Hope you all have a pleasant day. Thank you. This interview also may contain statements that constitute endorsements of measured risk portfolios, also known as MRP. Please note that any such statements are not made by clients of MRP, but by representatives of other investment advisory firms that work with MRP. No compensation was offered or given in exchange for these statements. However, a conflict of interest exists due to the incentive to give an endorsement in the interest of a good future working relationship between the endorser and MRP.